Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. I'm honored to present my conversation with Erwin Chemerinsky, a preeminent constitutional law scholar, Supreme Court litigator, and Dean of Berkeley Law. Erwin was also the founding Dean of UC Irvine School of Law, which became a top 25 law school within 10 years of opening its doors. In this episode, I talked to Erwin about several topics, including Berkeley Law's response to the pandemic, his vision for an innovative legal education, his advice to new students and graduating 3Ls, and how he picks which cases he takes on pro bono, many of which he argues at the Supreme Court or Circuit Court level. He also talks about legal fallout from the pandemic, from changed workplaces to a back and forth between the federal government and state governments with respect to shutting down businesses in the interest of public health. Finally, he talks about new constitutional law issues arising out of the pandemic and what key decisions we should watch for in this Supreme Court term. As always, if you like what you hear, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you like our conversation. Dean Chemerinsky, it's an honor to have you on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my honor and pleasure to be with you. So, so Dean, and I know uh, sometimes you prefer to be to, to go by Irwin. I'll I'll leave it to you here. Let me let me start by uh, calling call me Irwin, please. Thank you, thank you, Irwin. So, Irwin, uh, I'd love for uh, for you to introduce yourself. I think um, the majority of our listeners likely know exactly who you are. But uh, as I prepared for this interview, I learned so much about you. I learned about your humble roots. I learned uh, the story of when you learned that you wanted to be a a professor or a teacher of some kind for the rest of your career. There's so much inspirational. Um, stuff that is in your background. And so I'd love for you to introduce yourself all the way from um, a college student, uh, first in your family to go to college, to law school, to when you realized that you wanted to be a teacher of some sort. Well, thank you so much. Um, I grew up in Chicago on the far south side. I grew up in a working class family. My dad worked in a home improvement store and my mom always worked in the home. My brother's an electrician. My sister works in her synagogue. When I was in high school and college, what I thought I was going to be was a high school teacher. I took all of the courses in college to be a certified high school teacher. I did my student teaching at Highland Park High School. I filled out the paperwork and actually became a certified high school social studies teacher in Illinois. Relatively late in college, I decided that I was interested in going to law school. I was inspired by the civil rights lawyers of the 1950s and the 1960s. And I thought law was the most powerful way to change the world. Still believe that though change is a lot harder than I imagined when I was a senior in college. And I took the LSAT on the very last day you could to apply for the following fall and was fortunate enough to be able to go to law school. And I went to law school to be a public interest lawyer but always with the idea that maybe someday I could become a law professor. And I worked at the Justice Department and at a public interest law firm in Washington, D.C. And then through a series of coincidences, I was in the right place at the right time. And I got a teaching job at DePaul Law School in Chicago. I started in August 
1980. So I've been a law professor for 40 years now. And I went home after my very first class and I said to my wife, this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. And I'm teaching constitutional law this semester. I have three classes left today, Monday and Tuesday. And I can tell you that even after 40 years, I love teaching just as much, if not more than when I started. I love that introduction. I love your your backstory. Let's fast forward to today, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be very curious as to what the dean of UC Berkeley Law and certainly a constitutional law scholar, constitutional law professor is doing in these um, COVID-19 pandemic times. You mentioned that you're teaching a course, uh, you're teaching constitutional law. Uh, what is the state at UC Berkeley Law right now? I, I take it that uh, it, it's representative of uh, the state at a lot of top flight law schools right now. How are you conducting classes and um, how is that being received by the student body? On March 10th, we went to all classes by Zoom. Every law school in the United States is now doing all education by distance learning and every or virtually every university is doing instruction in that way. On March 17th, our counties ordered us to shelter in place. So our law school building was closed. And so that basically everybody is attending law school from their laptop. And I'm teaching constitutional law via Zoom. I think it's gone well, but it's not the same as being in person in class. Distance learning can never be the same is in-person learning. Do you think the any- Students' reaction- oh, Go ahead. No, 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 please. What I say is the students' reaction has been tremendously understanding and overwhelmingly positive. So many students have written to me to say how impressed they are with how the faculty has adapted to this and how satisfied they are with the classes. But again, there's things that you can get being together in a classroom or in a building that you can't get via Zoom. So much of what I care about as dean is building community. And yet, when we're all at home with our laptops, that's the exact opposite. And so we're looking always for how do we build community through this unusual medium of Zoom. Um, as dean, it has been a very intense, incredibly busy six weeks. On a daily basis, there are just constant administrative issues to deal with. Um, and just doing my best to keep up. It feels strange to be dean of a law school from my laptop. Um, in fact, I realized I was using my laptop so much that the E key, the I key, the T key, the A key, and the downspace keys all fell off. And I had to get a new laptop that was just set up. <laughs> You wore straight through your keyboard, Dean. Um, well, so so Erwin, I mean, how is that? Um, you know, how are you uh, doing? Doing your best to create community via Zoom, via email. You know, creating community in in a bunch of silos independently with you and your your office or at home with your students, maybe back home with their family um, in an apartment, uh, maybe maybe uh, you know, strewn all across the, the United States for for what it's worth. Uh, how is that going? And, and what what uh, uh, tactics and strategies are you using to do the best that you can in this new, um, you know, kind of artificially imposed uh, distance learning model? The culture of any institution is the product of many small choices. And so I've always been very attentive to what are the choices that I can do to foster community. Let me give you examples during just these last six weeks. One is 
very transparent and frequent communication. I send a long message to the community by email to all faculty, staff, and students first thing Monday morning with updates. I do Zoom town halls for all faculty, staff, and students. Started, I was doing them every afternoon at 4.30. Now it's Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4.30, where I make regular announcements in that way. It's also about the message that's there on our website in terms of trying to convey information to people. So part of creating community is transparent and frequent communication. A second thing is creating community events. Some of those events are substantive. I created a Monday series at lunchtime where a different faculty member presents each week on legal issues concerning coronavirus. So the first was presidential power on coronavirus. The next was about the difficulty in testing for coronavirus. I did one on civil liberties in light of coronavirus. This week's was a professor about criminal justice and coronavirus. Next week is about employment law issues and coronavirus. We created a Thursday series where a professor interviews a prominent person each day. In fact, um, there's one, today's Thursday, so there's one at 12.50 today that I need to attend. Um, we've also created less substantive things. We had a faculty staff trivia night. We did a student trivia night. Um, an associate dean runs a craft night. We do mindfulness sessions. Various departments are doing programs for the students. So some of it is creating community by having events that people can participate in. That's so remarkably. Third yeah, no, 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 just just, uh, you know, before before you get to the third thing, I mean, it's just so impressive uh, that that you and your colleagues have adapted to this so quickly. It's it's so impressive that um, that you, you've kind of established best practices for this and that you've understood that this is the right vision. Um, I, I had no idea all of that was taking place. And certainly you you've had just a matter of weeks to implement this. So I'm impressed by that. You were oh, hours. Not weeks, it's hours. You know, I, I remarked to somebody the other day, I have learned so much in the last two months. I just hope I never have to use the lessons again. Um, some of the third thing I was in terms of community is I think it's very important to express compassion and empathy for the people in the community and also to do things to help people in the community. So we created a student emergency fund for students who are having financial emergencies because of health or food or shelter or travel needs. I wanted to create a staff emergency fund, but the campus wouldn't let me use school funds for it. So we created a GoFundMe account. I wanted to create a separate emergency fund for our cafeteria workers who are not university employees. So we created a GoFundMe account for that. I worry that some of our students are losing their summer jobs. So we're creating jobs in the law school, working for faculty or centers or clinics for students who are losing that. I worry about our graduates and we're creating an emergency fund for our graduates if they have financial exigencies. And so this is all part of being community. Where it's even as simple as a few weeks ago, we sent a $75 Amazon gift card to every staff member to thank each staff member for all they're doing. All of these together try to create a community even though we can't be physically together. So, so Dean, looking, uh, I, I should say, Erwin, uh, looking uh, forward to the next, um, you know, certainly end of this term uh, and the next term, the fall term, 
What do you see as the best case scenario for things going as close to back to normal as they can get? How long do you think this new distance learning model is going to be required? What's your take on this? What, what are the best case scenario that you could think of and, and maybe a worst case scenario also? I don't know and nobody knows at this point when we can go back to usual life. I have a committee in the law school that's planning for contingencies. What's the best case scenario? Wouldn't it be wonderful if come August, we can all be together in live classrooms and resume our lives? For this term, it's already over. Classes end, we're speaking on Thursday, April 23rd, and classes end next Tuesday, April 28th. But wouldn't it be wonderful if come August, with the start of a new term, we'll all be able to resume our day-to-day -day usual lives? I don't think that's likely to be possible. Um, Everything I have read about public health leads me to believe that at least for those who are at high risk, it's not going to be possible to be in classrooms as we used to. That even if we have live classes, that they'll need to be distance, the social distancing. I worry that for our international students, they're just not going to get visas in time to be here in August. So my sense is the best case scenario is we'll be able to have at least some live classes with the ability for those who need it to attend by Zoom. For me, the worst case in terms of conducting classes is that we'll have to be entirely by Zoom again in the fall. Obviously, the best case is no one in my community becomes ill and everyone is healthy. Um, and I don't want to contemplate worst cases, but in terms of conducting classes, I think those are our options. In light of all of that, uh, what is your advice to uh, a young person today who might be considering going to law school? And they might hear this, and certainly your words, I think, would be echoed by a lot of other deans at prominent top-flight law schools. Uh, you know, what, what advice would you give a young person thinking about going to law school right now, facing down a first semester that may be virtual, maybe via Zoom? If you want to go to law school, you should come to law school. That even if the fall semester is in part or entirely by Zoom, there's still excellent instruction and it's still the path you need to take in order to be a lawyer. And I'm hopeful that whatever the restrictions are in the fall, it's one semester of law school out of six. And I'm not giving up on the possibility of live classes for first year students at the fall. I was just talking about different contingencies. But to anyone who wants to be a lawyer, this is a great time to go to law school. There's such a need for lawyers now. There are so many new legal issues arising. And I wouldn't focus so much on what the job market is for lawyers in April of 2020. Um, you'll be graduating in 2023. and It'll be, I think, a very different economy and world. How about those three L's that are graduating into that April 2020 economy? What, what advice can you give them? And before we uh, started recording, I mentioned to you that I graduated, in a, <laughs> graduated from law school in a pretty tough economy. That was 2009. But uh, in, you know, comparing 2009 to now seems, um, you know, seems, seems very, very difficult. It seems that uh, you know, these students graduating in 2020 may have a much rougher go of it. What can you tell them about, um, you know, what advice can you give them 
uh, you know, in, in trying to get out in the market to compete for jobs in a really bad time? I don't know is the only answer at this point. I'm going to do a town hall for our 3L students next Tuesday on the last day of class. Our students are fortunate in that the, almost all of them end up with jobs after graduation. Of the students who graduated in April, uh, in May of 2019, 10 months later, 98.5% had full-time jobs and some who didn't were in graduate school and PhD programs. My concern is jobs being withdrawn for our third-year students or what they're hearing is their start dates delayed to January or even for a whole year to fall 2021. And of course, what they're worried about is how are they going to support themselves during this time? They're worried about what will they do for income if the job they were planning on isn't going to be there. And here, I don't have an answer at this point in time. I wish that I had a situation where I had a pool of money that I could give to support them. I don't. The best I can do is a relatively small emergency fund for them. So I welcome hearing from others what advice to give to those whose jobs are being delayed or even withdrawn. I want to switch gears now, uh, Erwin, to your your last job before uh, your deanship deanship at UC Berkeley. And uh, that was your founding deanship at UC Irvine School of Law. And I want to read a excerpt from an article that came out just two days ago on April 21 in uh, the Daily Californian, the, the uh, newspaper, which I remember fondly because I did my undergrad at UC Berkeley. Uh, and it's a student newspaper at, at Berkeley. And in that article um, titled, How Erwin Chemerinsky Plans to Push Berkeley Law into the Nation's Top Five Law Schools, you refer to your um, your last job at UC Irvine, and you say, "quote There's not going to be another university of the caliber of the University of California, Irvine, creating a law school in my lifetime." Chemerinsky said, "I have a, a lot of views on legal education, and here was a chance to take advantage of a blank slate." Now, I've talked to folks who have, uh, uh, were professors at UC Irvine, and they all, and I think a lot of other folks, uh, give you very high marks for coming into UC Irvine and saying, I'm not going to be restrained by tradition. I'm going to create this law school in uh, the vision I think is most appropriate for legal education. What did you do here and what initiatives did you take on? to fill this blank slate completely um, you know, unrestrained by the hundreds of years of legacy of other law schools? We were constrained by hundreds of years of legacy. I said all the time when we we're creating the law school and devising what we were going to do, that our challenge was to be sufficiently innovative to justify why we existed and sufficiently traditional to be credible. It was an amazing experience. You know, in hindsight, I look back and the opportunity to be part of creating a new law school at a top university. And I had a terrific chancellor in Michael Drake, a terrific provost in Michael Godfredson. And what they said was they cared that they wanted this to be a top 20 law school as soon as possible. And within 10 years, UC Irvine was ranked 21 among all law schools. My vision of legal education emphasizes experiential training. 
could you imagine if doctors graduated from medical school never having seen a patient? None of us want to be treated by those doctors. And yet too many law students graduate never having met a client. So one of the things that the faculty agreed with me on was we should require a clinical experience in an in-house clinic of all students in order to graduate. And UC Irvine still has that requirement. We also developed an innovative first-year curriculum. And I'll be honest, some of the things we tried worked. Some of the things didn't work. But it was a, a wonderful experience. I think what it's easy to forget in hindsight is how fragile it all seemed at the time. There were so many moments when it just seemed that we we're on an impossible quest. Also, it, it's easy to forget all of the ups and downs there were because of that. Um, there were certainly many moments of, is this really going to work and feeling almost despair and times of real elation over it too. Um, it, was, it was a great experience. And I had said from the beginning, I would do 10 years. Um, I was officially in my ninth year as dean, though unofficially in my 10th year because I'd been working on it the year before after being appointed. And I already told the chancellor and the provost that the following year, 2017-18, in my last year as dean, and then an opportunity at Berkeley came up and it sort of answered the question of what am I doing next with my life? Did you view your founding deanship at UC Irvine as a way to experiment and iterate on legal education? Yes. Um, I felt strongly if we just replicated other law schools, we would have failed. Those law schools exist. They're great law schools, but we don't need another one just like them. So I thought our challenge was to take the blank slate that we were blessed with and to use it to do things new and different. And we did in many regards. What did you learn at UC Irvine over that nine to 10 years that you've taken with you to, to UC Berkeley School of Law? And what have you implemented based on those learnings? I learned so much, and there's no doubt that I'm a better dean today in my 12th year than I was in my first year, just as I think I'm a better teacher in my 40th year this year than I was in my first year. I can give examples of things I learned. I learned the importance of having a terrific administrative team of delegating them and trusting them. In fact, just today, there was an issue where I think I disagree with most of them, but I'm deferring to their judgment. And obviously, there are places where we disagree and I make a different call, but I realized how important it was to have great people in those roles and then delegate and trust them. I learned a lot about the importance of communication and being transparent and also being perceived as transparent. Um, rumors circulate quickly in law schools. Rumors can be terribly destructive. And so I feel that the antidote to that is my being open and communicating. Again, I'll give you examples. I do a coffee with students every two or three weeks where they can come talk about anything they want. I do a town hall for students and staff each semester. Um, now that there's the coronavirus. I do the town hall. Now it's twice a week for faculty, staff, and students. So I, I think I learned a lot about communication from that experience. You know, 
You've talked a, a bit about um, your rise to being a professor. You went from DePaul to uh, USC. You went to Duke, um, and then you 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 moved over at some point to uh, the administrative side of things as uh, as the dean uh, of, of UCI and, and then Berkeley. Uh, things have changed, obviously, since uh, you came up in that chance encounter and, and got your first uh, teaching job at DePaul. What advice can you give, uh, you know, maybe recent grads now who want to follow in Erwin um, Chemerinsky's footsteps and they want to be legal academics, they want to be legal scholars, they want to be professors at, at um uh, you know, in, in American law schools, how have things changed and, uh, what would you suggest to someone who has those ambitions? I think I have the best job in the world. It's hard for me to talk about being a law professor without sounding like I'm proselytizing it. So I would encourage them to go for it. It is much harder to become a law professor now than it used to be. There's much more demand for the positions, the competition to become a law professor is fierce. And I worry we're going to enter a couple of years where it's going to become even much more difficult. I expect many universities are going to have hiring freezes next year because of the financial consequences of coronavirus. If I was talking to a law student, and I often do say at Berkeley who wants to be a law professor, I encourage them to be a research assistant for a professor if they can. I encourage them to be on a journal if they can to write a note. I encourage them to think about the possibility of clerkships if they can. But writing is going to be the most important thing to be able to get a job as a law professor. So they need to think about how they're going to get the time to do that. Perhaps it's by being a visiting assistant professor somewhere, though those positions are also very competitive. Perhaps it's even getting a PhD. So many going out of the law teaching market now have PhDs. So I would talk with them about those aspects of planning for a career in academia, but I'd sure encourage it. I, I feel so fortunate that I became a law professor in relatively early in my career. I want to follow up on something that you said, and you mentioned that uh, it's likely that, that budgets will be cut and there will be hiring freezes and I'm sure a lot of other consequences of budgets being cut due to coronavirus. What do you see as the other implications for law schools like Berkeley Law and, and other schools in light of the, um, the tight economic um, situation, certainly at the state level for UC Berkeley, but also in a more macroeconomic way with high employment, uh, less spend, et cetera? How does that affect American law schools? All law schools, all universities are going to face serious financial crises because of coronavirus. The chancellor at UC Berkeley estimated last week that the campus will lose at least $210 million. You even hear from the most well-endowed universities the financial difficulties that they're going to be facing. And so the challenge for me as a dean is to make sure we don't compromise our educational program in any way and also to make sure that we protect our faculty and our staff. Um, more generally, there are countless legal issues from coronavirus. And so I think that we're going to constantly be looking to dealing with these legal issues in the classes we teach or even in creating new courses. This is, of course, an intentionally broad 
question, but I mean, what, what do you see as these um, big legal issues coming out of coronavirus? I mean, obviously, from insurance to employment to um, you know to products to any number of things, um, there likely are you know there likely is a major change in landscape across legal. But what are the most salient ones in your mind? I mean, what are those major legal issues that are going to be litigated in in five? you know, three, eight years due to this uh, massive, unprecedented pandemic? Again, I find it so hard to imagine three, five, eight years from now. It's hard right now to even imagine, you know, three, five, eight months from now. Um, My field is constitutional law, so I'm very mindful of the constitutional issues that have arisen with regard to coronavirus. Um, What is the government's power to quarantine and shelter in place? How does that relate to restricting the people to gather for religious purposes or for speech purposes? What are the limits on the ability of the government to use this power? What about the states that have imposed restrictions with regard to abortion? As a citizen, I look at you know, what does this mean for our health care system and how we pay for health care. Um, my wife focused on labor and employment law issues and can talk at length about how this may change the very nature of the workplace and the relationship between social benefits in the workplace. We have tended in this country to require, rely on employment as the basis for benefits like health insurance. European countries tend not to do that. Will we rethink this? I want to quote to you, uh, Erwin, uh, you know, a, a paragraph from an article you wrote about a month ago, on March 25, 2020, for the Seattle Times, that article was headlined, uh, the op-ed, I should say, was headlined, Trump doesn't have the authority to order the country back to work by Easter. I think uh, as we speak uh, on April 23, I think you were certainly vindicated in, in that predi- prediction. But uh, what you wrote was as follows. Trump has shown a wildly inconsistent view of the authority of state governments during his presidency, embracing federalism when it suits him and dismissing it when it doesn't. He was all for federal power when California attempted to chart its own course on auto emissions, for example. But then in this crisis, he was all for governors in the states handling things themselves until now, when he seems to be declaring himself the person who can order people back to work by Easter. This is one of those constitutional law issues, I think, that you uh, alluded to. What's your take on this, and what other constitutional law issues do you think are going to uh, come up in a novel way that have not come up pre-pandemic? President Trump said that he could order businesses to open, notwithstanding governor's commands for closure. He said this repeatedly. He was wrong in this regard. The power to quarantine exists at the state level. Shelter in place and business closure orders are just milder forms of quarantine. The president has no authority under the Constitution or under any statute to be able to countermand those orders. The Constitution doesn't have an emergency clause that lets the president do whatever the president wants. And the only federal statute allows the Surgeon General and Health Human Services to take actions to stop the spread of communicable disease. Ordering opening a business wouldn't do that. Moreover, there's a clause in that statute that says nothing in it preempts state and local law. So the president clearly did not have this authority. 
What other constitutional law issues do you see coming up? Uh, I mean, there, there's certainly many just based on this issue of, you know, the embrace of federalism when it suits him and, and the dismissal of that when it doesn't. What other constitutional law issues do you foresee coming up as there's this tension between uh, state control or, you know, several states banding together? You know, I know some Midwestern states, Western states, and um, some states on the East on the East Coast have done so. Uh, what co- other constitutional issues come up when the federal government tries to um, tries to mandate that those states do certain things, whether they're quarantine, shelter in place, or demands that certain businesses uh, just open up uh, again by by some sort of uh, uh, order? I think that there's going to be so much litigation. There's obviously many lawsuits that have been filed already with people who are arguing that quarantine orders or shelter-in-place orders are unconstitutional. I think they're wrong. I think it's clearly allowed. There are lawsuits that have been brought by churches that want people to be able to gather for religious worship. Again, I think the law is clear that there can be restrictions on the ability of people to gather for any reason for health purposes. I think that there's challenges to the state laws that have imposed restrictions on abortion. Um, most courts have declared it unconstitutional. The Fifth Circuit initially upheld it and then backed off a bit. I think there's going to be litigation with regard to the takings clause. And this is the provision of the Constitution that says the government takes private property for public use and must pay just compensation. And I think that there's going to be challenges where business will say the government has closed us down. The government has to pay us. Um, there's going to be lawsuits against universities. There already are from students seeking refunds. Yeah, and I know as far as the takings clause, I know a lot of uh, restaurants, hotels, et cetera, have already began litigating that, right? Um, government shut us down, and, and that is a, a, a taking from, uh, from our restaurant or our hotel chain. And I, I'm fascinated by that. Erwin, um, in your spare time, of course, I say this uh, you know, half-jokingly, but in your spare time, you still take on appellate cases, uh, frequently at a very high level, um, often argued in front of the U.S. Um, Supreme Court. And you take those on on a pro bono basis while being a professor, while being a prolific writer, while being the dean of UC Berkeley School of Law. Uh, obviously, you can only take on so many. I think, um, y- you know, as a rule, you take on fewer than 10 appellate cases every year. But correct me if I'm wrong about that. Oh, many fewer than that. Many fewer than Many fewer than that. Since well, being a dean, I've probably averaged two arguments a year, sometimes more often in the courts of appeal, sometimes in the Supreme Court. This year, I had one Supreme Court argument and one Ninth Circuit argument. Last year was atypical in that I had three court of appeals arguments and one Supreme Court argument. But I, as a dean, I, I'm very limited in terms of what I can do. So it's you know a couple of cases, maybe a few cases a year. How do you pick them? I wish I had a good answer for that. Um, as you pointed out, most of what I do is pro bono, and there is a tremendous demand for free legal services. So I constantly get requests to provide legal services. And I have to say no to 98% of them because I just can't. Um, it's a tremendous luxury as a lawyer that I do get to pick that um, I don't need to take cases in order to earn a living so I can be involved in the ones I most care about. And that's probably the most important criterion. I'm involved in cases that I really care about. 
Um, they involve issues that I really want to work on. Um, beyond that, it, there's no systematic, I mean, it's um, the case I argued in the Supreme Court in November of 2019, um, some lawyers came to me, it was an important civil rights issue, and I argued it in the Ninth Circuit and won, and then in the Supreme Court, though I lost there. Um, the Ninth Circuit case that I argued in February, uh, uh, old friend came to me and said, we have this civil rights case, would you argue it in the Ninth Circuit for us? Um, one case I argued in the Supreme Court was a collect call from a homeless man, Thomas Van Orden. And um, sometimes it's parents calling me because of a child being in legal trouble. And I'm, I'm really moved by that. I wish I had some systematic way, but it's really about, um, do I feel I have the time to put in? And is it something I care about? Erwin, you're known by your colleagues, your students, um, you know, professors that teach with you as being compassionate, as being empathetic. Is that a, a core part of how you pick these? I mean, do the cases that you take on in some way tug at your heartstrings and make you want to, um, you know, uh, transcend the briefs and tell a story that is based on you know, human suffering or, um, or the ability of, of, of someone to flourish or the ability of someone to regain their, their uh, personal liberty. That's so kind of you to say, yes, at least some of the time. I mean, I can point to issues that I've, cases that I've taken. I remember a mother calling me about a son who she felt was wrongly convicted. And I read the materials and believed then and believe now that he was wrongly convicted and handled the case for many years. Um, uh, and certainly I, I can point to, you know, I, I argued a couple of death penalty cases in the Fourth Circuit. And so, then, but sometimes it's the legal issues that really move me that I really, you know, um, when I handled a case that involved sovereign immunity a year ago, some of it was my compassion to the person who was treated so badly by the government, but some of it was my believing that sovereign immunity is wrong. The government, if it does something terrible, should be held accountable. Um, so I think that compassion is a, a big part of what I get involved in, but I also want to be involved in cases where I can make the law better. As, as we've already mentioned, it is late April, 2020, uh, the court, uh, the U S Supreme court has already decided on a few cases this term again, correct me if I'm, if I'm mistaken there, but there's still a lot more cases, uh, that are going to be handed down and, and decided on, uh, what what cases should our listeners pay special attention to? What are the cases that are going to be the most impactful and, and maybe be taught in constitutional law classrooms in law schools in 20 years? What should we keep an eye out for? There are so many this year. There's an abortion case, June Medical Center versus G, about whether or not a state can require that doctors have admitting privileges at a local hospital in order to perform abortions. So it closed down so many facilities where abortions are performed. There's important civil rights cases, Zarda versus Altitude Express, Bostick versus Clayton County, but whether employment discrimination based on sexual orientation violates Title VII, which prohibits employment discrimination based on sex. There's RG and GR funeral homes versus COC that involves the question of whether discrimination against transgender individuals violates Title VII. There's the DACA case, University of, uh, Department of Homeless Security, University of California, about whether or not President Trump's rescission of DACA was impermissible. 
There's the important cases that are going to be argued in May about subpoenas of President Trump, in a, of the banks he's involved with, um, Trump versus Vance, Trump versus Deutsche Bank, Trump versus Mazars USA. Is a president completely immune from subpoena? There's an important Second Amendment case that involves the ability of a state to regulate guns outside the home, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Cuomo. All of this is decided between now and the end of June. It's an, it's an amazing array uh, of cases. Erwin, um, what do you think the obligation is for um, you know, practicing lawyers? And uh, I, I want to turn the attention especially on large, you know, big law lawyers, right? AMLA 200 law firm lawyers to continue to do pro bono work. I mean, in, in some ways, if the dean of, of Berkeley Law has time to take on cases and argue them at an extremely high level, and uh, work on them, as I mentioned in your quotes, uh, free time or spare time. What obligation do you think, um, you know, attorneys at, at the big law firms in America uh, have or should have with respect to representing uh, indigent clients or representing issues that they feel strongly about? I believe that every lawyer has the obligation to do pro bono work throughout his or her career. I tell that to our students. When they come for admitted students day, I tell it to our students the first day of orientation. We're all very busy, but we all can make time for what we think is important. And I would hope that our graduates will do pro bono work throughout their careers. Erwin, I think that's a great note to end on. I think that's exactly the inspirational note uh, I'd love to, to leave our listeners with. Erwin, uh, thank you so much. You've been extremely generous with your time in a ex extremely demanding uh, moment uh, in, in history here uh, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you uh, very much. And I really appreciate the, the work that you're doing. And, and uh, it's certainly inspiring to, to me. And I think it will be for our listeners as well. You're so kind to have me on the program. Thank you, and such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.